Hello, my name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about one of the German filmmaking luminaries. Rainer Werner Fassbender, the Andy Milligan of Germany. <laughs> I've been saving that oh, all week. I actually, just for you. I was watching Andy Milligan films and I was like, ah, maybe I like these more than Fassbender's films. <laughs> but we'll get into that. So, what's your history with Fassbender? My history is casual fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've probably seen, I mean, the man was wildly prolific, over mm-hmm. 40 movies, and he died when he was what, 40? In his early 40s? Uh, He died in his 30s. Okay, there you go. I mean, an insane body of work, which I've seen probably, I don't know, eight or nine of over Mm -hmm. the years. And I, I have liked most of what I've seen. He doesn't speak directly to me so like a lot of like kind of the more art housey filmmakers i actually discovered fassbender on my own reading books in the york university library Mm -hmm. and i think i just stumbled upon like a big section um just dedicated to him and i started reading this stuff and as a filmmaker he always kind of inspired me in the way that like my favorite prolific like doing a bunch of stuff guys do like the idea of this filmmaker who made like 40 movies in Mm -hmm. such a small span he would make like four to five movies a year Mm -hmm. with a troop of people that he would just like use as like a repertory company giving like roles here and there just doing whatever came to his mind and also you know voluminous television and theater work as well yeah like i mean berlin alexanderplatz which is this massive sprawling tv movie that was always amazing to me and you really liked his lifestyle just a just a monstrous man who destroyed everyone one around him and and was like a bull in a china shop both in his personal life and in film culture so it's really difficult for me to separate fassbender's life and his movies because they're so intermingled Mm -hmm. especially that like one of the major works that i read about him is this book called um love is colder than death which was written fairly quickly after he passed away. And like a lot of like famous figures, when they die, there's all these like tell-all books that come out. Mm-hmm. And Love is Colder Than Death is kind of like a step-by-step look into his personal life mm-hmm. with interviews um, with the people that were involved. And holy shit, Fassbender was a huge piece of shit. And so many of his movies are about you know, complicated and sadistic power dynamics Mm -hmm. between people, particularly in the romantic sphere. So, like, this idea of, like, this filmmaker who has a group of people and he works with them all the time, while a utopian idea... Fassbender would just, like, play them against each other, play mind games. There's a story right at the beginning of the book that someone came to deliver a film can to him, and Fassbender was like, hey, you want to go hang out afterwards? And the guy's like, no, I have to go see my friend. Fassbender was like, okay, yep, sure. And then when that guy left, he was like, make sure to cancel his ticket so he can't go anywhere. Okay. Like, he would make people's lives miserable if they didn't kind of step up to his whims. And if he got bored with them, which would happen. He would just treat them like garbage until they self-destructed or somehow got away from him. And this is the world that we see in Fassbender's movies. Oh, yep, exactly. So yesterday I watched three of his movies all in a row. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> um, which which is quite a headspace yep. to be in. I watched In a Year of 13 Moons, so I got in with, you know, the toughest one first. <laughs> yep. Then then I watched two that I had seen before, um, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant mm-hmm. and his beloved Ali fear eats the soul and uh you know each one got a little uh easier for me uh, as it went along and i mean i guess i was trying to figure out why fassbender has never been one of my favorites Mm -hmm. over the years even though i often gravitate towards you know these artists who put 
anguished visions into the world, like these these cris de coeur. I think it's probably because he's too popular. Yeah, that, like, perhaps, he, perhaps. He's not a gutter auteur, right? Like You're someone right. like Andy Milligan, that he does have a system and support and yeah. funding to make these pictures. Like like we said, he made some for German television. Yeah, and also, like, he is just an extraordinary artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a technical filmmaker, uh, on the level of craft, you look at a movie like The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, the way he films this one set is awe-inspiring uh the the compositions uh yeah like i'm babbling but fassbender got started in a theater and that's Mm. where he kind of made his bones and it he did that also because like cinema was not something that was that respected in germany at that Mm. time when he started getting going so when he started making these movies they could go oh he makes films but he also did critically acclaimed theater Mm. didn't he apply to be in one of the german film schools he did and he got turned away so he went to this theater company and through sheer force of personality Mm. he more or less took it over and he renamed it the anti-theater company so anybody that talks about fassbinder they say that like he was such a magnetic charismatic figure like he was gay and he was openly gay a lot of his movies deal with that but women would fall head over heels with him and throughout his life he had a trail of women that just followed him and did whatever he wanted so in the bitter tears of Petra von Kant which is about this 35 year old twice divorced very flamboyant fashion fashion designer Petra von Kant she lives in her apartment slash studio with a woman named Marlene, played by Erm Herman, who is her servant, her silent throughout the whole movie, a regular silent Bob, <laughs> just an observer who whose tortured facial expressions sort of tell you something about the power dynamic of this relationship. Mm. He is, she is the sub in yes. this relationship. But in real life, Erm Herman was a woman who loved Fassbender, who he just kind of... I guess, strung along for many years. I mean, he gave her big roles, but when, like, she went out of her way and was off her roles, oh man, was he angry. Like, he hated her for that. Yeah, so, I mean, a real case of art imitating life, uh, Mm -hmm. or perhaps vice versa. I I mean, like, Fassbender, his films are usually an extension of what's going on in his life Mm -hmm. and how he has to express himself. So The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, which is one of his most famous movies, was was the earliest one I watched for this podcast. Mm -hmm. I think his real breakthrough was Katzelmacher from 1969. Yeah, like, early on in his career he brought everything that he had in the theater to the screen so like the one you just mentioned uh, Katzelmacher was shot in like static wides and like it was definitely like a kind of anti-cinema I've seen that one not recently but I have seen it and the, the whole idea with that was it shows this small community of kind of directionless young people mm-hmm. and the visual style of the film replicates their own sense of inertia mm-hmm. and then when somebody tries to break out of the inertia the visual style like the camera starts to move a little more and, and that was one of I think like four or five movies he made in 1969 yeah like his first <laughs> film was Love is Colder Than Death which mm-hmm. is a kind of like crime thing if a crime film nothing happened in it yeah and then he moved on uh, just kind of discovering what he wanted to do in cinema like one of the best things about Fast is that while the thematic stuff is the same, stylistically, he's always experimenting and trying Mm -hmm. to do new stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, uh, The Bitter Tears. It was based on a stage play and the way that he shoots it it is stagey in the sense that it takes place in one location, mm-hmm. but the way the camera actually delineates what's happening and what's going on and power dynamics, it makes it. Well, for example, there are many times when Petra von Kant will be sort of prattling on mm-hmm. and his camera will hone in on Marlene, the servant, whether she's typing at her typewriter or just looking mournfully on in the background. And that's something you wouldn't get in a stage play, mm-hmm. this sort of editorializing. Or oftentimes... 
the characters in this in the house because Petra falls in love with Karen, who's a young, beautiful model, mm-hmm. and they have a very tortured power dynamic. Uh, originally, Petra wants to kind of dominate Karen, wants to, uh, her idea of love is to possess somebody. But then when Karen, you know, just goes off and fucks someone else. Then, uh, Petra is destroyed. Yeah, and, and then decides to run off. Yeah, like, and Petra von Kant you know, she's wearing all these wigs, she's wearing all these costumes. Very symbolically, she's surrounded by mannequins mm-hmm. that have various articles of clothing on them, as if to suggest to you these are, you know, various personae that she could be wearing, and what even is the real Petra von Kant? But the way that he arranges these people in rooms, you know, depending on who's in the foreground, who's in the middle ground, who's in the background, that will tell you a lot about what the power dynamic is. Or oftentimes, his camera will be uh, a long shot with somebody or maybe one or two people framed from a distance, like in the middle of the shot, as if to emphasize their isolation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, his compositions and his camera work are very heavily symbolic. Yes. I mean, and going through his films, they either get very abstract, like mm-hmm. something like In a Year with 13 Moons, or it can get more almost like realist, like mm-hmm. uh, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Mm-hmm. But Petra von Kant, I think, is a really good one to start with, because while it is long, it is contained and you get a purity to his characters. Mm-hmm. And while it does end on a downer, it ends on a downer that... That, like says a lot about the rest of the movie and not only ties it up but kind of underlines it in a way that's really interesting that I didn't always get from his film like yeah. I watched a bunch before that like um, Beware the Holy Whore which was a recreation of an experience that he had making the film Whitey mm-hmm. and that film Beware the Holy Whore is just miserable like there's okay. really fun technical stuff going on but every person is a huge piece of shit that is just <laughs> abusing other people and kind of realigning power dynamics in a way that I find really um, unpleasant uh-huh. and like there's value in that but it's just watching all of these movies one after the other a lot of times that's just what you get is these complex people often they know that they're bad but they can't help but acting badly and that's like Fassbinder himself it's a hard worldview to spend a lot of time with Mm -hmm. I think I mean you know his movies they're not exactly joyless. I mean, he's very heavily influenced by Douglas Sirk, of yeah, course. Yeah, well, uh, that would happen a little bit later in uh-huh. his career. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, at the beginning, he was consciously trying to make art films. And then when he fell in love with Douglas Sirk, who was a director for the studio system and would make these very uh, dismissively called woman's pictures Mm -hmm. that were actually very complex and understood how to use the camera and and quite subversive. Yeah. And subversive. Mm -hmm. And like uh, Fassbender fell in love with this uh, filmmaker. He actually went and uh, talked to him for um, an afternoon Mm -hmm. and he kind of took this idea of, okay, what if I did simple things, but then made them kind of emotionally complex in their center. So it's not just technically like, Oh, look how crazy it is. Or I'm breaking, form it's telling a story anybody can recognize well you know Petra von Kant uh, I I think it's a a great movie Mm -hmm. Uh, I oh I think it's a great movie as well yeah like I have a hard time watching it because it's really hard to be in this room for two hours with these people like I think it says a lot about you know human nature uh, like I watch um, The Merchant of Four Seasons which is the one that came out uh the same year as uh, Petra von Kant and that's another one that's like heralded as like his best and it's the story of a guy who's kind of like let his life go to shit Mm -hmm. and him trying to put it back together Mm -hmm. and doing his best and basically the theme of the film is that like he fucks up right at the beginning again Mm -hmm. and then he suddenly 
finally starts to put things together, but it doesn't matter because the people mm. around him are so self-destructive mm. that like it destroys it for him and he's haunted by the decisions that he didn't make throughout his life. Mm. And it's like another case of misery portrayed beautifully. But at the end of the day, I was sitting there being like, oh my God, this is my seventh one. <laughs> like, is this what I have to go through again? I mean, I think his movies have a lot to say about the way we behave in relationships because you know even, terribly even, i mean we even, all behave we terribly. all behave terribly and even the best among us are guilty of like unhealthy power dynamics mm-hmm. sometimes and you know we're like Petra von kant we all put on personas mm-hmm. that are sometimes paper thin that can be easily punctured and it's just like watching these movies and being just f- refreshed on his life it was difficult for me to go like was this movie worth it considering the emotional damage he left in his way i mean i i sense that like you don't I mean, I, I don't know if I like him as yeah. a guy, but but like, did, did that kind of heavily weigh on you? Uh, like- it, it did only as it went along, mm-hmm. and it like the movies—they're not similar, but I, they just feel the same way. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, I mean, sometimes on this podcast, we watch a lot of the same person's movies in yeah. a week, and sometimes it gets exhausting being in that world for a week. <laughs> and Fassbender, definitely, <laughs> like, there was that pull on me, yeah. and the images being portrayed would trigger, like, oh, I remember somebody saying this about him. Like, I gotta say, like, Fassbender, like, he was a monster. Like, he pimped out women when he was in the theater to do funding uh, to keep the theater running. I believe he pimped out Udo Kier. He, like, adopted one of his lover's sons and then gave him to uh, an actor because he got bored with him. An actor who was famous for sexually abusing young boys. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's just, like, this kind of, like, wake that he left. Mm-hmm. And and he's dead, right? Like, watching these movies is not giving him any money. Well, sure, yeah. It's not giving him any support to those things. But it's difficult for me to watch these films and not think of this stuff that I saw. And I know that, like, any Hollywood movie that we watch leaves, like, tons of bodies in its wake. Like, mm-hmm. because if I watch anything by Harry Cohn, I'm reminded that, like, he would, like, molest and rape his actors and treat them like garbage. Even the MGM musicals. Arthur Freed, yeah. Yeah, um, it was revealed after he died that, like, he would, like, whip his dick out mm-hmm. to, like, Shirley Temple and stuff like that. Do you feel, because these Fassbender movies are expressions of such, are such anguished expressions of such an anguished soul? Like, you, that's what it reminds me well, of? Well, like, do you feel, I don't know, it, like, implicated it in it in some way? Because I think, I think this is weirdly an aspect of his movies that mm-hmm. I that I like. I mean, there is a, a real authenticity to the anguish of these films, mm-hmm. and it's like, there's, there's no comfortable distance from it. Like, he's not making musicals, like, fun stuff that I can disconnect from the people that actually made it. I mean, it, like, this guy is a, a very skillful artist, but he's a very, like, truthful and soulful and authentic artist. Who... I think it's just reminding me of people that I know that are like, I know I'm an asshole, and then they continue to be an asshole. I also think you don't like the cult of personality around Fassbender. No, I don't like the cult of personality around Fassbender. Oh, you mean like today, the way well, that people... Well, I, like, I think one of the things that sort of has continued to carry him, mm. uh, in addition to... It's like he's a cool, passionate yeah, guy. Yeah, I yeah. mean, in addition to his great films, it's the image of him as, you know, the chain-smoking, <laughs> leather jacket-wearing... I do have some dissonance when it comes to the way that he's portrayed in, like, magazines or even, like, Twitter and stuff like that. The way people, like, jokingly talk about him or sure. he's like, I love him, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I'm like, he was a monster! <laughs> Even though, like, again, why him 
and not some other people that I know that were also terrible, terrible people. I guess because it's so specific and I guess fresh in my mind. And right also now. because Fassbender is the canon. Yeah, right? he is. Yeah, he is yeah, the yeah. canon. Like, yeah. you know, all the people that we love, and I'm not going to name names because we'll get to them. Like, And we probably talked about them and didn't talk about their personal life as much as we've done uh, Fassbender this episode. But it's just because they're so intermingled sure. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I watched Ali Fear Eats the Soul again. Great movie. I, I thought it was beautiful mm-hmm. and wonderful. Uh, and... I mean, I had an easier time with this one than Pedro von Kant because the central relationship and, and you know, the, the two central actors are so moving. And um, while it is like a sad movie, it's also one that is about love and love that shouldn't exist, but it's finding a way in this brief moment to exist. Yeah. So it's about a, you know, aging, I guess she's probably in her 50s, mm. an aging uh, cleaning lady whose children are all grown up and she's a widow and she forms an unlikely bond with. Uh, a, a Muslim immigrant who lives in Berlin, whose whose name has a long and complicated name, but everyone calls him Ali, and they form a bond that is very much about their kind of loneliness and their outsider status. A Douglas Sirkian bond, if you will. And they get married, and their bond is not accepted by anyone in the community. People are either openly scornful, such as her children, or they're you know, kind of passively scornful, mm-hmm. like, you know, the people who work at the bar or or the restaurants, you know, many microaggressions that, mm-hmm. that they face. And even when people accept their relationship, uh, they'll often exoticize Ali, like they'll be feeling his muscles mm-hmm. or, or, you know, <laughs> speculating on his sexual prowess or that sort of thing. And I think that what's beautiful about this film is that, like, Bridget Murrah, who plays Emmy, the older uh, woman of the relationship, she's not the person that you're ever used to seeing in these kinds of mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, especially moving. Mm-hmm. Like, she was uh, an older star of German film. Mm-hmm. And, like, Fassbinder just grabbed her and he's like, oh, she'd be perfect for this role. And there's something, like, so emotional about that. Well, there's something so pure about the relationship. It's like the world is a hard place mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you have to work all day and you're, you're husband is dead and you have so little but you've against all odds formed this connection and you should be you should be allowed to have this connection it's nice that you have this connection and yet the whole world is conspiring to crush this one connection that the dog is barking in the background <laughs> this is the dog you fostered yes the dog feels this very strongly, strongly too. <laughs> this expression <laughs> and i think this is like fassbinder at his best where these emotions are being expressed in a way that's very clear but it's difficult to deal with a structure that we all recognize in a form that we're not used to tackling. And I think that's like really strong and it does, you know, reflect merchant of four seasons as well. But uh, I think that Will said it the best. Fear eats the soul is easier to swallow because we feel sympathy for these characters. Mm -hmm. They're not people that we feel pity for because we start uh, seeing them miserable and they get more miserable as the film goes along. Mm -hmm. It's people whose lives are kind of, deconstructed yeah. until it has to reach the tragic yeah. climax that all of Fassbinder's films we, ge- we genuinely like the characters and I also I don't want to say that the movie is necessarily better than Bitter Tears of Pedro von Kant because it has quote unquote sympathetic, sympathetic characters, characters. Yeah. Uh, because you know Pedro von Kant has a lot to say as well but yeah Ali Fear It's the Soul is an, is an easier pill to swallow it's mm-hmm. also I think rigorously unsentimental mm-hmm. like just he, direct yeah yeah and again filmed with his typical technical mastery there's but even like a bitter tears of petra von kant there is an artifice of it taking place on this one set and the way the camera moves yeah. uh, almost a disconnect that you would get in something like a theatrical experience while fear eats the soul is just like 
you're here. Yeah. Like, you're experiencing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's probably his movie that gets watched the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also watch Fox and His Friends, which is another, like, direct uh, Fassbender stars in the film as a um, gay man who wins the lottery. And then he hooks up with a richer person who abuses him and uses his money, treats him like garbage until, mm-hmm. uh-oh, surprise, it ends in tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one is more of a kind of, like, ah, man, there's not really any joy in this film. A roller coaster that uh, takes the downward uh, dive right away and then just crashes in the ground mm-hmm. by the time it ends. But it is, again, this, like, simple, direct, emotionally... Like, Fassbender in the main role as Fox is so sympathetic as this kind of, like... He's not a simpleton, but he's someone who... He's not used to all this artifice around kind of um, appearances and stuff like that. Like a lot of like, we're at a rich people's table. Oh no, that's the fork that you have to use kind of stuff until it finally crushes him. Other than that, what was the other movie that you watched? I watched In a Year of 13 Moons from 1978, a very prickly and thorny film, Mm -hmm. which is about a transgender woman named Elvira or Elvira, played by Volker Spangler, who used to be a burly... A slaughterhouse worker named Irwin. She changed her gender. Uh, she fell in love with a man, and then uh, she went to Casablanca and snipped her dick off. Yes, uh, I think that's pretty much what they say. Yes, that's exactly what they um, say. And you know, the, the the movie will certainly be, I think, uh, uh, problematic. Yeah, uh, for 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 anyone who sees Even it. Even when it came it, out, yeah. like. Um, Fassbender always dealt with critics that were like, your films are like anti-feminist. They're like anti-transgender people. Like even the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant kind of portrayed this relationship. Mm -hmm. And because lesbian relationships weren't portrayed on screen in that much of a direct way and it being a negative one, Mm -hmm. like what dominated the conversation is like, how could you do this and show this in such a destructive light? His films don't really seem to uh, fit into any political box. No, I mean, people called him political in the sense that he hated the kind of like structure and rigors that were around him, but he never got involved politically beyond the movies that he make, which were very, um, I guess, reactive. Yeah, I I mean, there's some kind of, there's an anti-capitalist side to his Mm -hmm. films, I think. I mean, in his public statements, I think he would say things like that he hates the extremists on yeah. the left and the right. He, see, he sees anger all around him and, and hate all around him or mm. whatever. Uh, and in this one, well, Elvira, uh, having been abandoned by her lover, and she's not really transgender. No, she's not. N- n- not in her conception of herself. I mean, she's really a man who is now in a woman's body. Yeah. Uh, the story, just a little bit of content, as I said pretty early on, is that the man she fell in love with said, oh, I could never date you because you're a man, but maybe if you were a woman, and that's what led to the... Um, member snipping. This character is living in a state right from the get-go of misery. Yeah, and misery and alienation. And she spends the movie kind of revisiting sites from her life, whether it's the slaughterhouse or... A gruesome detail. Yeah, there's the slaughterhouse. There's the, I guess, Catholic orphanage where she grew up. She sees her children with whom she has, as you can imagine, a rocky relationship. And she... You know, spoiler, folks, she kills herself at the end Mm -hmm. uh, because there are no happy endings in the Fassbender oeuvre. And that slaughterhouse scene, you know, it's like Blood of the Beast or something. Mm -hmm. It's really gruesome. 
Uh, although, weirdly enough, I got pretty numb to it quickly. Well, it's a lot of like long mm-hmm. tracking shots across mm-hmm. these things. So there's not that shock of like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm seeing this. There's more of a like, you get to live with this as it goes along. I believe there are some parallels being drawn, you know, perhaps problematically to the slaughtered cows and her own mm. disfigured body or what, what Fassbender would regard as her disfigured body. So when I stepped into this film, it was impossible for me to disconnect it to the story that I had just read, which was that uh, Fassbender's lover at the time had committed suicide, mm. and it broke Fassbender so much that he, he felt he needed to express it. And this is like a cri de car, mm-hmm. this film. Like, he wrote it, he shot it, he was his cinematographer mm-hmm. for the first time, I believe. And, like, this is such a personal project, and is so, as you said, uh, prickly. Mm-hmm. More like angry and stabbing in the way that it's presented. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there was a bit of a disconnect to me because it is so like, ah, like a scream throughout. Well, it gives you really no relief. And even the Berlin that it's set in, I mean, there's a scene where she visits this th- this area where all of the, I guess, working class housing has been demolished and more modern, mm-hmm. high priced housing has been built in its place at an enormous profit of course so there's this sense of displacement Mm -hmm. and insecurity not only in her own body but also by extension germany at large like everything like nobody fits in anywhere yes i mean if you want to watch this movie and i would recommend it if you want to see fassbender at his most kind of like dark and that's saying a lot uh-huh. uh don't watch any other fastbinder movies around that one because this one is so pure <laughs> in its kind of directness that i felt that like the other ones were intruding in a way mm-hmm. that like this one is very abstract especially when it gets near its end mm-hmm. that it, I, I had a disconnect with it which i was like oh man come on like <laughs> like mm-hmm. like take a step back i need i need something to connect with as opposed to like this is so miserable and i know where it's going that i'm not sure what I'm supposed to take out of this other than life sucks and we should all die and it's tragedy and I know that makes me sound like oh man why can't they just throw in like a kung fu scene in it uh, or something like that but because or or a couple of sympathetic characters quote unquote yeah it's just because that we we did watch so many of these movies over and over again that this articulation that the world is shit Uh is something that I had gotten right and that like it was just digging it deeper and deeper into me and while I can feel empathy for these people and how difficult life is for them like it's almost like watching them on a slaughterhouse thing like i know where this is going Uh and i'm just waiting for it to happen i had trouble connecting with in a year of 13 moons for similar reason reasons although uh i watched it with interest and admiration Mm -hmm. just just a vision that this pure and bleak yeah yeah i mean there's that And I mean, a year in a year with Thirteen Moons is one of his most heralded, mm-hmm. and it makes sense why it would be mm-hmm. because like artists usually don't get to articulate something so again just like pitch black. And he did it right near the end of his career. And a lot of people say that this kind of tainted the movies that would come after this. Mm-hmm. That because of the suicide of his lover, who at the time he had kind of written a. Um, uh, fuck off note too. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. Like, I'm going to go do my own thing. Fassbinder himself, I mean, this is projecting that he kind of felt that love was dead mm-hmm. and that like love was something that he personally wasn't going to attain in his life. And it feels like the other movies reflect that a little bit because he would still make a whole bunch of stuff afterwards. Most famously, 
Berlin Alexander Platz, which was his like 14 episode mega series, which <laughs> according to the book I read, and I know a lot of people say this book, you know, pushes things too far, was mostly funded as such a epic project because he needed to pay for his drugs, which at this point were so massive mm-hmm. that like he needed a project that like, oh, it's like 14 feature films all shooting back to back to back so he can pay for his cocaine and like all the other stuff that he uses. <laughs> and he also made some ambitious late period films like Lola and Veronica Voss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it is a tragedy that he died so young because yeah. there should have been many more films. He was, I, it, I wonder like where his films could have taken him would have been this kind of like even spiraling further into darkness. Like Veronica Voss is an amazing movie as well. And it's like a small black and white one about an aging German actress finding her life unraveling and eventually tragedy ends it at the end. Mm-hmm. And that one is something that is almost an anomaly in his later films because Lola and uh, Kerel, they're so abstract and expressionist. Like, Lola is shot all in these crazy colored gels. Kerel is also shot in these, like, warm, the sun is setting in every single orange hues, which is uh, set on, like, an expressionist studio backlot. Mm-hmm. So it almost feels as if, like, Fassbender feels that he pushed things as far as he could mm-hmm. in the emotional stories that he wanted to tell and only expressionism and abstraction in a different way than he did at the beginning of his career was the way that he could express himself almost as if he was saying like I don't know what other stories to tell and I need mm-hmm. to tell stories because it's the only way that I can live well I would like to conclude with a quote by Fassbender he said in my film love engenders violence and vice versa so there you have it folks <laughs> it says everything that it has to say <laughs> All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, this week on our Patreon, we did an episode on how to start your own film club. And we recommended six movies that we believe would be good starter films if you want to do this. And this is as per the request of man who has the Important Cinema Club logo tattooed on his knee, uh, Michael Hendra. And we hope that you find it informative, Michael, because you'll be living with us for the rest of your life. Wow. And if I've it, never felt such power. Any, I'm the real Fassbender. <laughs> Yeah, you're manipulating and using people. And as per usual, that's $5 a month and you get four episodes a week. And we're also starting the Important Cinema Club newsletter. And I don't just mean something that you receive every week by email. I'm talking about a physical newsletter that you'll receive in the mail that will be all exclusive writing that you can't find anywhere else. And that'll be a $10 a month Patreon tier. So uh, the newsletter, we're just kind of figuring what it's going to be at first. Like maybe it'll be like reviews, thoughts, recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, One idea that I would love to do, and it would just, I have to figure out exactly what pieces would go into it would be like a newsletter that looks like a fake cinema like the important cinema club cinematech mm-hmm. all the films that we programmed in that month mm-hmm. that doesn't exist just to serve as like capsule reviews and recommendations mm-hmm. and stuff like that by the way there will also be a larger writing project coming soon yes which we're not ready to announce we're not yet. ready to announce that yet yeah. but the newsletter Keep is it. like yeah. a real scruffy thing i was yeah. inspired by michael j weldon in the introduction to the uh, psychotronic video guide talks about that early in his career he used to do like a weekly mailer that would have all the tv movies movies that are playing um that week and Mm -hmm. like little capsule reviews and i love the idea of that so that's basically um in the spirit of that but not exactly and it'll be monthly Mm -hmm. so you can check that out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and that's the new ten dollar tier also 
we're announcing that we're doing a contest. We're going for 200 Patreon subscribers. And once we hit that number, what we're going to do is that we're going to pull three names out of a hat and the number one winner, and this week can announce at that time, will win a yearly subscription to the Important Cinema Club. No, like, you don't have to pay for anything. You'll just get them exclusive to you. And you'll also be able to pick a topic of a Patreon episode. Sure. So that'll be the number one prize. There's going to be a second place, a third place prize. But we're just pushing for those 200 Patreon subscribers. And I should also point out that... Um, if you want to check out like lists that we talk about or can't remember all the movies we talk about, check out Film Trap because I've been keeping it up that every week I post on, when I post on SoundCloud on that website. And like last uh, week when we recommended Vinegar Syndrome titles, I actually listed all the Vinegar Syndrome titles that we mentioned and have links to the page. So when that Black Friday sale happens, you can just get them right away and make sure that they are not out of stock. So our first letter is from Tony Marshall and it goes, questions, comments. Hey guys. Big fan. Enjoy your podcast a bunch. Thank you. As a Scot, I relate a lot to the state of Canadian cinema. Growing up, I saw a lot of my country in Canadian, Irish, and Australian cinema and have a soft spot in my heart for it. Will you guys ever do an episode on a Scottish director, such as our auteurs Lynn Ramsey, we need to talk about Kevin, Bill Forsyth, local hero, Bill Douglas, the Bill Douglas trilogy, or our journeyman Paul McGuigan, lucky number 11. We will never do an episode on him. I do not like him. <laughs> Paul McGuigan is the guy who gets like the best... Uh, movie properties and does the most boring stuff with them. It was a Rogers video staple that I would get his films and be like, maybe this one will be good. <laughs> like a Pulp Fiction ripoff, Lucky Number Slevin, or like a proto Marvel superhero film, Push. And they would always consistently be very boring. He would go on to direct episodes of Doctor Who, though, and they were okay. Or David McKenzie, Hell or High Water. Oh, that's the guy who also had Outlaw King come out on uh, Netflix right. this week. Most of which I think have had interesting careers and their work is filled with hidden gems. P.S. You're welcome for Norman McLaren, who he's correct. He is Scottish, not Canadian. He just came to Canada to work at the NFB. Sincerely, Anthony Marshall. Um, Scottish directors. I don't feel like we could do a, an episode without Matthew Kumar by our side. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you think you don't you don't think that just cuz like Matthew Kumar I feel would give a perspective to yeah. like whatever we're talking about Scottish wise. Yeah. D does he have any fav favorite uh Scottish auteurs? I don't think he does, but I yeah. think that like if we can, like, I mean, we talk about, like, Bollywood and stuff like that. We don't have people that know Bollywood. But the fact that I know someone from Scotland. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch movies with Matthew that are from, like, Scottish origin or even just the UK. Because his perspective is so different than mine. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. he can inform so much stuff. I think that he's in L.A. right now. But if he comes and visits soon, we should do, like, a Patreon episode or, like, a normal episode on a Scottish filmmaker. Sure. Because I think it would be really interesting. Or maybe we'll do one uh, before that if Matthew decides to stay in L.A. forever. I'm abandoning his good friend Justin DeClue, which hurts my feelings, but you know, it's nice that he's successful. <laughs> that was just for Matthew. <laughs> and the thing is, if we do a, a Scottish episode, Matthew would write such a long letter in reply, <laughs> sure. clarifying and letting us know that things are wrong. So it's better just to have him on. Well, Matthew, if you're listening, feel free to send a, a, a letter with your favorite yeah. uh, Scottish uh, filmmakers. filmmakers. Yeah. And Matthew, are you a Patreon subscriber yet? <laughs> Uh, so next week, what are we doing, Will? We will be traveling back to India and looking at the most famous 
Bollywood star, although I think Bollywood is maybe not the correct word. Uh, uh, I'll just say Indian cinema. Yeah, the most famous Indian star. Or Hindi cinema. Yes, the most famous star of Hindi cinema, and that is Amitabh Bakchan. Mm, Amitabh Bakchan, co-star of The Great Gatsby, right? Yes, and I'm sure that's the movie <laughs> we'll be talking about. Uh, no, he's a guy who, who stars in Cholet. He stars in... Bol Bakchan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He, star- he stars in Dawn. Yes. Uh, Sarkar. Uh, yeah. Um, he's a guy that like I've always been fascinated by mm-hmm. uh, because he's such a huge star like he's the actor who gets mentioned in um, Slumdog Millionaire at the beginning mm-hmm. who comes and visits the main character and he's not just a star there he's like a superstar he, yeah he's like Abraham Lincoln over there okay <laughs> he's been in politics he's yeah. been in he's been the host of who wants to be a millionaire Insane. for a while yeah. and like we're gonna do our best but like when we did our Bollywood episode like we're coming from a place of complete distance from this but i'm really excited to jump in and discover more and to watch his movies and to try to understand like what makes him a superstar and in fact one of his movies is playing in theaters right now so you and i are gonna hit up the albion cinema in etobicoke tomorrow night yep the uh indian cinema and i'm very excited because we haven't been since bahubali 2 yeah so until then my name is justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening Recently, our Laser Blast Film Society screening at the Royal Cinema was going to happen on November 1st. And that's my birthday. And when I learned that it was going to be my birthday, I was like, Peter, who is my co-programmer, can we just do something that like I would love and I would always love to see on the big screen. Like I'd love to do Godzilla Final Wars. And I know this is an impossible ask because Godzilla films, they don't play on the big screen ever. There's no retrospective. There's usually nothing. And the reason for that is Toho doesn't, have any interest or want to jump through the hoops to make that happen. It's too bad. Yeah, I don't understand why not. Maybe yeah. they've been burned too many times by, like, um, American distributors and stuff like that. I remember in the mid-2000s for the 50th anniversary of Godzilla, the late lamented Cinematheque Ontario did a program of mm. movies. That's the only time I can remember. Yeah, I think that it must have been, like, a sweetheart deal, because mm-hmm. what ended up happening is that um, Peter was able to get Toho to give us permission to play the film. But this was only because, because he personally knew the director, Yuhei Kitamura, and they realized that he was the Midnight Madness programmer at the Toronto International Film Festival. That's the only way. And he had to talk to them and kind of like make a deal with them that we could play Godzilla Final Wars. But we did on the big screen where that movie is meant to be watched. Well, I remember when Godzilla Final Wars was being made. This was the 50th anniversary Godzilla movie and Mm. it was going to be... The last one. The last one for a while, at least. Um, and and as the 50th anniversary movie was going to have all these monsters, all the classic monsters from Godzilla history, and they were going to come back, and it was going to be a, an all-out blowout. And of course, I was really hoping it would play in theaters mm-hmm. in North America. And in fact, it had a Hollywood premiere Yes, at which Godzilla got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. <laughs> and there are wonderful pictures you can look up of Godzilla, a man in a Godzilla suit holding up I have the video star. of the event. It, and it was in English because it happened in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating (laughs) so the movie did not get a north american theatrical release because it bombed in japan Mm -hmm. it did very badly yeah and um i actually approached it at the time not as a godzilla fan but as a fan of the director Mm -hmm. because he made verses he made azumi and i remember reading reviews at the time when it came out and it sounded so insane that i was like whoa this is gonna be the greatest movie ever and then i saw it and i remember at the time i saw a bootleg version that had no English subtitles. And there is English in the movie, so I did have a guide throughout it, but I had no real idea of what was going on. And it was the greatest movie of all time.
close to the greatest film. As our friend Matthew Kumar says, Ikiru, Godzilla Final Wars <laughs> right underneath. But like as a Godzilla fan, a lot of people were disappointed. And you said that you actually felt a little bit of disappointment at the time as well. Yeah, right? I was a teenager when it finally hit DVD <laughs> shelves in North America. And I remember thinking I, I was I was alienated by Yuhei Kitamura's style, which post Matrix, post Matrix, you know, a lot of. Yeah, post-Matrix. That's the best way to describe it. Basically, people stopping bullets with their hands, the camera swirling around people. And I thought, this isn't Godzilla, and so I was very frustrated. Uh, but, you know, I'm older and wiser now, and I saw the movie, and really, it's in the spirit of the really silly Godzilla movies of the 70s, mm-hmm. but which had space alien invaders and stuff like that. It's not in the spirit of the classic 1954 original. I don't know who still wants that movie. Like, I mean, there are many people who are purists yeah. who say that Godzilla should be scary. So they're like a fan of that one, Godzilla 85... <laughs> And parts of Godzilla 2000, I guess. Because every time they reboot the Godzilla franchise, they're like, all right, now he's going to be scary like the original. And eventually that just kind of goes, or Shin Godzilla, which plays in that that, uh, space as well. I remember showing this to a friend and like kind of hyping it up and then we watch it and about an hour in he's like man i don't want to watch this like i don't want to watch power rangers like i want to watch godzilla movies i think that was probably my reaction when i was 15 and watching it like now and having memories very clear of the other godzilla films i have to say what the fuck is he talking about well (laughs) the epiphany i had watching it this time was most godzilla movies are boring for 50 percent of the time 50 (laughs) <laughs> that would yeah. assume there's like 50% Godzilla. Well, there are a lot of scenes of people sitting in offices and scientists talking about, you know, how th- th- he's yeah. appeared in Tokyo Bay. What could yeah. this thing be? Or there are scenes of like a reporter talking to somebody who knew Godzilla 50 years ago. It's like, oh, I think Godzilla's coming back. This one, it's the Power Rangers. Yeah. You and, and I think Kimura- I would take that. <laughs> yeah. Yuri Kitamura's like, would you rather have scientists uh, talking kind of anonymously in a um, boring kind of set? Or would you rather have two men have an extended martial arts fight on motorcycles? <laughs> yeah. And I also, when I first saw it, thought there wasn't enough Godzilla. There's I, so much Godzilla. I was wrong. I don't <laughs> yes. know. Hey, there's more Godzilla per than pa- any Godzilla pound, pound film, yeah. in this than most. I mean, I can understand somebody going like, oh, too much Godzilla. Because once Godzilla makes his like big uh, appearance uh, other than the prologue, it's just Godzilla time the mm-hmm. entire way through yeah. as he goes through all the most famous monsters in like the classic style. Like that's probably the best decision Yue Kitamura made, which is that he could have gone in and been like, I'm going to shoot this like versus like the way Godzilla films have never been shot. And he didn't. He just shot it classically, the man in suit on a set action. And it's so much fun. But the best thing about the screening was you got an intro from Yue Kitamura, mm. which you ended up playing afterwards because it was 20 minutes long. Yes, it was very long. And he was just very reflective and he talked a lot about it. And uh, he, he talked about the heartbreak of when it came out and people didn't like it. But, yeah. but people have come, many people have come to like it over the years mm-hmm. and, and how the the love of the fans keeps him going as a yeah. filmmaker. And I mean, Yui Kitamura is a guy who's like had a lot of, oh, you've given this great opportunity and then he makes a great movie or like the best movie he can and then it just get tanks. Like his Hollywood debut, uh, Midnight Meat Train, which is a lot of fun, got dumped because Lionsgate like shifted personnel yeah. and then nobody cared. Starring so- Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper, who Yui Kitamura says he's still very good friends with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe Bradley could throw him a bone. <laughs> throw him a bone. And then 
in like Yuki Tamura made like WWE films. He went back to Japan and he did. I some did stuff. see his WWE film. No one, no one lives. I Let us called. not speak of it. Yeah, <laughs> Let not- us just praise Godzilla: Final Wars and how fun it is, and the fact that I'm glad that like people are turning around to it because like when I watch it, I go. Why would you not enjoy this? Like, this is a film that just wants to entertain you. And, like, it obviously tries as hard as it can and gives the great starring role to Don Fry, the UFC fighter. Just one of the uh, most distinctive white guys <laughs> to appear in, in a Godzilla. He looks like a computer made, took a video game, like Final Fight, and made him real. <laughs> it's like, it's like imagine Jesse Ventura, yep. but but he was giving a totally affectless performance. <laughs> yes! There's, what is it? Uh, there's two things you don't know about this world. One of them is me. The other one is Godzilla. But he doesn't do it with anywhere near that level of expression. <laughs> but that's what makes it great. He holds a samurai sword and he's got a big mustache. Yeah. Don Fry's... It's t- he, why didn't he become a star? I don't... Like, <laughs> why didn't Japan just, like, jump on him and use him in, like, DTV? There's a shot looking up at him where his face, like, in, in the theater. And I gotta say, the audience was great. We applauded, we cheered when stuff happened. But there's, like, a low-angle shot of Don Fry where he smiles... <laughs> It's like Mount Rushmore smiling. You know, I just remembered that there was a time, and I want to say like 2002, 2003, when one of the rap theaters in Toronto played Godzilla vs. Megalon mm-hmm. on 35mm. Oh, and yeah. I was too young to go. Really? Well, I mean, I think I think my dad probably just didn't want to take me. No, he's like, you can see Godzilla whenever you want. Like, what do we have to go out to see in theaters? Oh, God, I wish I, I wish I. But we got gone. to see um, Godzilla versus. Uh, we saw Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the the first one, at Sonic Boom. The yeah, on a 16mm print. It was a 16mm television print that had to- been, totally been turned red. Ah, still beautiful, It was though. still wonderful because it was free admission. Well, you paid five bucks and you, you got, got a beer. beer. Yeah, and like, ah, if only that could be recreated. I mean, for people in Toronto, me and Peter, like, that was so much fun that we're like, we want to do a Godzilla marathon. Yeah. And like... I, I can't imagine how fun it would be with an audience to watch a bunch of Godzilla movies and just see it evolve as it goes <laughs> along. But until then, people at home, watch Godzilla Final Wars.